0: Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. This week, I am joined by Michael Reeve, who was one of the hundreds, thousands, I don't know, we'll find out, of extras who participated in the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony in London. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hello, thank you. I guess we uh, know my first question. How many people were on the field for that performance? I think
1: there were about 7,500 volunteers in all, and then there were a few hundred paid uh, actually competent dancers as well as um, us volunteers.
0: This is kind of the biggest show on earth. How did you get involved in this?
1: Uh, Last year, I think it was around about um, May time, tickets went on sale for London 2012. And like most people who live in London, obviously really excited about it, applied for tickets. And I think there were something like 2 million people applied for tickets and only about 800,000 actually got anything at all. Um, so I was one of the people who didn't get anything. So my sort of, uh, excitement about the Olympics waned quite a lot. Um, and then I'd signed up for emails from, from the, from London 2012. And they sent an email through saying, if you want to volunteer to be in any of the opening or closing ceremonies for both the Olympics and Paralympics, um, here's a link to a website, fill in your details and we'll get back to you. And so just went and looked at the website and it asked you, do you have any of the following skills? And it was things like, can you do BMXing? Can you do drumming? Are you, uh, are you a juggler? Can you walk on stilts? And this kind of thing. Do you
0: have any of those skills?
1: I have none of those skills. So essentially, it was just like a load of, nope, 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 uh, thinking, well, they're never going to get back to me, are they? Um, but it turns out there's a whole load of us who have no inherent skills who are capable of being trained up to be performers on that sort of stage. Um, it was, it was, uh, yeah, quite unexpected. So I had, I think I had, uh, first audition was about October last year. Um, and basically it was all sort of things like just learning fairly simple dance moves.
0: So you were auditioning with dance moves and you are not a dancer at all. No. So it's basically
1: things like, uh, imagine you're holding a pole in front of you, like a scaffolding pole, you know, so, uh, you've got one hand above the other, Now imagine turning that through 90 degrees like you're twisting a baton sort of thing. Uh, And then swap your hands over, continue turning it. And can you continue miming, imagining twirling a baton in front of you? Um, And then there were sort of other ones like uh, they took you through a series of moves imagining you were getting up in the morning. So you kind of yawn and stretch and then stop your alarm clock. And then you go and make a cup of coffee But each move was a really kind of simple, uh, like reach to your right and move your hand down to turn the alarm clock off. And then they got us all to do it at the same time to prove that, you know, just to look at whether we could remember pretty simple moves and then carry them out to a rhythm. So essentially, they were just looking for people who have some sort of rhythm and can do simple moves that you've just been taught.
0: So they are auditioning people with dance moves. None of whom have any dance skills.
1: Absolutely right. I mean, essentially, I think part of what they were looking for was, do you have rhythm? And then the other part is, do you have enthusiasm? So if you if you're rubbish at it and you keep screwing it up, do you sort of uh, enter that with sort of good uh, in a good-natured way? Like, do you smile and laugh through it, or do you look a bit kind of frowny and fed up? Because they're looking for people who are gonna enjoy the experience, because that's going to come over more, I think. At least that's, that's the way they suggested it to us, uh, than if you're kind of uh, getting frustrated and you know, not actually enjoying yourself.
0: And how many people auditioned?
1: I honestly don't know.
0: How many were in your room? Like, what, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine this scene.
1: Probably about, um, probably about 250 to 300 people. So um, they took over a dance studio, um in well east end of london because obviously all of the olympic stuff is taking place around that area obviously uh not obvious to you obviously but um uh yeah so basically we all kind of got given slots to go there they gave us a little sort of number which you pinned onto your shirt so they could keep track of who you were we met a guy called steve um what's his name steve that's kind of thing i probably should have Looked up beforehand. Steve Boyd—that was his what his name was—and uh, he's basically worked on the choreography for, I think, the last nine Olympic opening and closing ceremonies in one form or another. So basically, he kind of introduced to us the sort of thing we'd be we'd be doing, um, and he's kind of an expert in dealing with what they call mass choreography, which where you have a whole load of people doing something. And
0: what's fascinating to me is that it's mass choreography, and again none of these people can dance. Yeah. I don't mean to stress Absolutely your lack no. <laughs> of dancing skills. I don't mean to dwell on that. But I, for me, that's just one of the most, uh, this is going to surprise everyone, I can't really dance either. And for me, that's one of the most terrifying things I can imagine is auditioning as a dancer for something.
1: I, I think one of the things that made it uh, more enjoyable is when we you know, chatted to each other, because uh, obviously I met people who'd come from, well, all over the country uh, to, to come down for the rehearsals. Uh, Sorry, for the audition. Um, And I think everybody who I spoke to had not ticked any of the boxes. So I think everybody who was there, plainly not a dancer, just interested and enthusiastic in the possibility of maybe being involved in the show. Um, So there was a lot of kind of enthusiasm among the group.
0: Was there anyone Uh, in the group that was just a clear no? Just even in this group of amateurs... You were sure was not just not going to get it.
1: Um, I'd have to say yes. Uh, it feels a bit unfair that not many, um, and I think perhaps the audition process was largely a weeding out of. Um, let me try and think of a polite way of saying. The people in society who you uh, might not normally choose to talk to, or. Put on
0: television to represent your city to the world.
1: (laughs) Well, or or the sort of person on the subway you'd probably leave alone because they'll just talk to anybody, or, 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 I don't know, someone (laughs) that. Yeah, exactly. So maybe they're just
0: checking that you're not crazy and you're not like running, running around hitting people with your imaginary pole or something.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So though, I think probably audition number one is filter out the mentals, uh, and then audition number two is maybe the next step of, and, and can you actually take instruction and follow it through?
0: Were you surprised with your own talent and your capability to do this? Uh, yeah,
1: I genuinely was. So, I mean, as I say, the auditions were like the end of last year, uh, and in I think it was either January or February this year, um, they got in touch to say, we're, we'd like to offer you a part in the Olympic Open Ceremony. And they give you this email with a huge long list of these are the dates you need to be able to do. Um, and uh, basically, because obviously the, well, the audition started at the beginning of May. Uh, so there were three months of auditions and rehearsals started off about once a week going up to three or four times a week in the last month before the ceremony.
0: That's something I was very interested in. What is the time commitment for doing something like this?
1: We worked out, it's probably about 150 hours for the section we were in, so, obviously, it depended what your role was.
0: And we actually didn't even cover this yet. What was your role? Yeah, sorry. Uh, that's okay. As the interviewer, that's actually my fault.
1: No, that's okay. Um, so, if, you, if you've watched the opening ceremony, there's a sequence that's meant to represent the Industrial Revolution. And during it, a whole load of people come on, led by um, a whole load of Brunels, people representing Isambard Kingdom Brunel, um, who lead on working men and women, who come and clear off this what starts off as a quote, green and pleasant land unquote, uh of fields and hedges and fences, and basically clear it so uh big industrial chimneys kind of come up and beam engines, uh and then basically forge one of the Olympic rings on the on the field of play, which then rises up to for, to, to join four others and make the Olympic rings. So my role was one of these uh, industrial men and women. Well, in fact, our, our title officially was "Working Men and Women," who represent sort of the Industrial Revolution, stripping the land and uh, making it industrial.
0: It's interesting to hear you describe what happens in the opening ceremony, because you really—I'm um, obviously by practicing it and hearing it, des- you know, described by the director. Really got a sense of uh, the story and the imagery of everything. I think a lot of people watch it and they're like, I don't know what's going on. There's some dancing. There's a big baby thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, basically the, the right. Well, if I sort of go back to our our first rehearsal. Sorry, first or uh, yeah, first rehearsal. Um, we all went into the room, sat down, and somebody comes out and says to us, "Right, so if you'd like to all step over there, and you can meet Danny Boyle." And we we're thinking, right, so they're going to sit us down in front of a video and we'll see Danny Boyle tell, telling us all about what we're about to be involved in.
0: Uh, we, real quick, no, for those man, that don't know Danny Boyle, I, I don't know if everyone knows him by name. Maybe they do. It's, yeah, it's sure. hard to say, but Danny Boyle uh, directed Slumdog Millionaire in 127 Hours and 28 Days Later uh, *Train Spotting*. And I mean, all these great, great movies. I'm sure, what am I forgetting?
1: Uh, Sunshine was one. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it pretty much there with most of his well-known stuff. And yeah, so we go over and he's actually there beside a scale model of the Olympics stadium laid out as it would be. And basically, uh, as it would be for the start of our sequence. And basically, he introduced us to what his vision was for our sequence. Um, I think at the time, he expected that uh, as the sort of main opening sequence of the opening ceremony that people would see, this is the one that he was going to be most concerned about it looking good. Um, and I think that's also reflected, I think we had more rehearsals than any of the other sections. Um, yeah, so so basically uh, he showed us a video, uh, which I literally sort of cut together with a few kind of, still frames of drawings and some CGI and some bits of video of people doing the same sort of actions that we'd be doing, just to give us a flavour of what it would look like and playing the music alongside it. So we'd sort of get an idea of what we'd actually be doing. So um, even from that sort of early, well, I mean, obviously there'd been a lot of planning before that, but even that early stage, he was able to give us a pretty thorough description of what our section would look like. Um, he didn't, I mean, so in terms of sort of the secrecy around it, um, I don't know how much you or your listeners are aware of what the British tabloids are like. They've got a pretty bad reputation generally. Uh, and, uh, generally if something new is introduced that they're unfamiliar with, the, the response tends to be negative and skeptical. So as soon as they heard about the opening ceremony, they wanted to a find out what was in it and b belittle it as much as possible. So probably for the first kind of uh, month, couple of months of our rehearsals, uh, we had permanent inquiries of the like. So sort of, there'd be journalists hanging around outside our rehearsal areas, trying to find out from us what we were doing, what our sequence was going to consist of. Uh, so basically, they could publish it and then make it sound rubbish. Because uh, that's, that's very much the way uh, British, uh, this is very negative, but British journalism tends to sort of go. And only when something actually happens or some positivity comes behind it, do you actually start to see them changing their tack and being really positive. So for example, pretty much for the run up to the opening ceremony, all of the papers were full of, Let, we're going to embarrass the world after how amazing Beijing had been. Uh, and then actually afterwards they were full of praise about how amazing the spectacle was. Um, But, yeah, it's quite interesting that uh, we, in terms of how much secrecy we were sort of being asked to keep, we were told not to tell anybody, not even friends and family, about what we were doing, and we were completely unaware of what the other sequences that made up the opening ceremony were going to consist of. So it was only, uh, I think, in the final few weeks of rehearsals that we saw the section that was after us which was the section that featured the nurses and the children's characters so um in terms of us piecing together a story we sort of saw things bit by bit and had longer to uh, obviously kind of take on what we were seeing and uh weave a story out of it than most viewers did
0: when you start to hear that criticism as a volunteer as just a cog in this machine Do you still take that personally?
1: Uh, You you can't possibly take them personally because it's, I mean, essentially, as you say, I'm just a tiny cog in the machine. I think it must be quite demoralizing if you're somebody like Danny or one of the other people who are involved in the creative side of it. I mean, to some extent, he's probably taken a fair degree of um, flack at one point or another for being a public figure in the UK. But... um, yeah, I mean, I, I my thought was just to slog on, because basically, because we were involved in it, we could have some vision of what our section was going to look like, and to be honest, even from a really early stage, it was looking pretty good, so we were quite, <laughs> so I, I was reasonably confident what we'd be doing would silence the naysayers, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that really kept us going, and I think if you speak to if you, if you encounter anybody else who was involved in the opening ceremony, probably the thing that was most positive about it was Danny Boyle himself, because it, it's surprising really, I, I thought we had 26 rehearsals I thought we might see him at a couple of them going into it because, you know, the man's so important and so involved in the sort of visionary side of it, you're not going to see him every week turning up to see you practice lugging a load of turf on your shoulder, which is what i largely spent my time in the in the sequence actually doing but in in practice of the 26 rehearsal sessions we had i saw him at all but two of them uh and at the majority of ones that i saw him at he came and spoke to a lot of the volunteers and was just chatting to them um as somebody who kind of as, as i say it's, it's difficult to sort of describe that the man is, is we do we were all quite impressed by you know him and his achievements it's quite uh, astonishing to see him just like wandering along and I remember one one day uh, a lot of our rehearsals took place at a place called Dagenham and Dagenham is uh kind of the extreme east end of London um I'm trying to think of a sort of an analogous place in uh say New York I guess it would be somewhere like Somewhere in New Jersey that's kind of a bit out and is mainly an industrial part of
0: town. Now, watch yourself when you talk about New Jersey. You,
1: you get what I'm saying. Is somewhere that's sort of relative to central urban exciting city.
0: Totally. I mean, there are places like that in New Jersey. That, that sounds like you're just wrapping New Jersey. All right.
1: So uh, Dagenham is this area that used to have a massive Ford motor plant. That's now closed down, and there's a whole load of deserted, derelict kind of concrete areas. Uh, and so they they used a giant concrete area the size of the olympic state of the olympic stadium as as the rehearsal area, so we had a whole load of rehearsals in this kind of remote part of town uh The weather was pretty rotten in the few months leading up to uh the opening ceremony now
0: i'm sorry to interrupt and i've only been to london once but isn't shitty weather kind of your thing yeah
1: exactly we're known for it it's changeable i mean i think one of the things people say about the weather here is you know if you don't like the weather hang about it'll probably change in a bit but during our rehearsal periods it seemed like we it rained a lot and i just remember there was one day we were out in this sort of and, and I, I'm sl- somewhat regretting creating this uh, connection to, to New Jersey now, but in this godforsaken part of London. Oh,
0: there's godforsaken parts of New Jersey. Okay,
1: fine, cool. We'll stick with that then. Uh, and it, it's, it's pissing down with rain. And uh, Danny Boyle comes, comes wandering across. And this guy next to me says, oh, how's it going, Danny? You know, kind of, I'm, I'm pretty fed up. How are you doing? And he just said, I'm having a great day. And he sort of looked at him and thought, really? And he said, yeah, this morning we went to the Olympic Stadium. We've just had the bell fitted. And um, in case you've you've not seen it, um, the, the world's largest harmonically tuned bell is at one end of the Olympic Stadium. But they'd just installed it, and they'd rung it for the first time. And he basically, Danny just said, it was amazing, just the sound of it. And you remember that bells were forged to to communicate with people and to send messages out and just to see him getting so kind of excited and enthusiastic about a bell ringing. Uh, Admittedly, it's a big bell, but, you know, (laughs) it's infectious to hear somebody being that enthusiastic about something and it makes you really kind of positive to help them make the best thing they can. Uh, Him being around all the time really kind of uh, added to everybody's enthusiasm and, and positivity about... Something that, to go back to your original question, the the press would grind you down somewhat if you just saw this permanent negative anticipation about it.
0: Danny Boyle is probably one of the greatest directors working today, What's it like working with someone like that, especially when they do something like articulate their vision for the Olympic opening ceremony?
1: I, I, he's really good at expressing exactly what he's trying to get across. So, I mean, he explained to us sort of a lot of stuff about uh, what he wanted to see happening in the vision. I mean, I think one of the things that um, he described about, he he really wants the opening ceremony to feel inclusive and to be about the people in it. Um, I mean, you might remember at the end of... Uh, the sequencer has a whole load of people dancing and there's like a passage of through time through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it ends with Tim Berners-Lee and the message, this is for everyone. I think Danny Boyle's vision for the whole thing was about making it for the volunteers and the people involved in it. Um, So he likened our sequence to, um, there's a, a... reasonably famous piece of art by an, a British artist called Anthony Gormley. And it's called Field for the British Isles. And if you Google that, you'll see it's basically a room in an art gallery full of tiny little figurines of people with two little eyes. Um, and they've been made by schoolchildren in the area where the art is being displayed. And uh, they're, they're all different because kids make different, these figures, different heights and different sizes and different shapes. But the idea of the art is that no one can own it because at the end of the exhibition, the kids all get their little figurines that they've made back. So no one buys it. It doesn't belong to any art galleries. It's a sort of essentially a piece of conceptual art. But as a whole, the vision of all of these kids' statues together looks really cool. But individually, the little figures really don't look so remarkable. And I think he he sort of, the, the opening ceremony program has got an image of that piece of art inside the front cover. And I think, uh, I remember him saying, you know, that that was his vision for how he wanted the whole thing to feel. That it was about us and as volunteers taking part to feel like it, we had some kind of ownership over it. It's really funny because me telling it, I sound really hackneyed and rubbish, whereas when he tells it, it sounds so in- in- infectiously exciting and, uh, and passionate. And so that's the man's gift, really. I think it's that uh, he, he had a way of making everybody feel uh, energized about something that, um, you know, ordinary man can't, maybe. Oh, God, that sounds really felt fawning You get the sort of thing I'm trying to say. It
0: sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> How much time did you spend rehearsing?
1: I reckon... I think somebody worked it out. it's about 150 hours.
0: So there must have so, been some um, camaraderie. Yeah. Did you make a lot of friends?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, basically, when you went to your first audition, they gave you a, a numbered bib, um, which you wore to pretty much all the rehearsals up until maybe the last week and a half. And... Because you, were, you had these numbered bibs, it was easier to handle a 1,000 people all wearing numbered bibs to make you stand in number order. You tend to know, get to know the people on either side of you in that area. So um, I was number 865. I'm still in touch with, I think, number 861 to maybe 875. And, yeah, we're going to meet up and go around each other's houses. When a DVD comes out, as it's bound to, we're all going to get together and have a have a night watching it maybe fast-forward over the Parade of Nations. But other than that, yeah, we'll probably watch it all through again.
0: And I suspect <sighs> it's a pretty wide variety of people, right? Yeah,
1: no, huge variety of ages, um, different backgrounds. It reflects kind of as, as broadly Britain as, uh, you know, any 10 random people dragged off the street probably would. Because, um, I mean, basically, the as I say, the role that I was involved in was, was pretty manual labor. It was It was lugging... Uh, like rolls of astroturf or genuine turf off the field of play, and uh, people ranged. And there was one guy who was nineteen, in, sort of near me, and one guy who was seventy, just turned seventy. So it was a. Big old mix of ages that were in there.
0: Now, what exactly are you guys doing together? What are rehearsals like?
1: At the start of it, it was mainly about learning uh, dance moves. So you might, I, again, obviously, no one except us will have watched that opening ceremony back as many times as we have. Uh, but there's a seat, towards the end of uh, as the rings are coming together, you might see some people at the bottom of the screen, round the edge of the field, doing a sort of hand motion. So that was one of the first things that we learned was uh, this series of, I think it's 24 moves that you do. Uh, They're very kind of um, mechanical, uh, sharp movements, like you're pulling levers and uh, turning cogs, that kind of thing. So
0: you're learning to dance. Yeah,
1: basically, yeah. Uh, So our first maybe two or three rehearsals, pretty much exclusively learning pretty basic dance moves. The next thing was essentially learning how we were going to move all of those items, all these uh, bits of turf. In the section I was uh, assigned, basically, so everybody who was in that section was assigned an area of the Olympic Stadium that had to be cleared. So some of them um, and again, this is sort of, uh, if you have if not seen it, it's it's difficult to describe. But our sequence started at nine o'clock and finished about nine twenty. The sequence before us was uh, started at eight twelve p.m. and finished at nine 8, nine p.m. And that was essentially a sequence depicting people going through a sort of very agrarian way of life, so as people milking cows and playing cricket and traditional sort of British rural activities during that section beforehand. Some people had something like 20 sheep there. So some people were um, herding sheep. Um, As I say, there were cows and goats and geese. Any area that had real animals on had to have real turf underneath it because you can't have sheep gnawing on astroturf. So uh, different areas of the field had to deal with different stuff on the ground that need to be cleared out so we spent several the majority of the rehearsal time dealing with how will we clear this effectively you know in terms of having a thousand people running onto or marching onto a field of play taking things off and not getting in each other's way too much the majority of the rehearsals weren't really about choreography so much as you can't practice doing that unless you have a thousand people actually doing it so, a lot, a lot of our rehearsal time was just taken up with, hey, let's try this and see how that works. And obviously, every time you, you have a go at doing that and everybody takes their stuff off, if you want to try it again, you've got to put it all back on again. Um, so, uh, a lot of our rehearsals tended to involve lugging bits of turf off the pitch and then trying to fit them all back in because they're all different shapes and sizes back where they came from
0: who are the instructors in rehearsal
1: okay so um, we all have earpieces and uh, it may be a bit of a revelation on the night we all had earpieces as well it probably isn't because imagine if you've got a thousand people who aren't dancers you need to tell them when to do things so uh, we all had earpieces during rehearsals and on the night itself and through our ear we heard the main choreographers, so there was this guy, Steve Boyd, who'd been involved, as I say, previous nine opening and closing ceremonies, uh, and another guy called Toby Sedgwick. Uh, you, you know the film War Horse? Before that was a film, it was a stage play in, on the West End in London uh, with a sort of puppet horse. He was responsible for the choreography of the, the puppet horses. Cool. He's previously worked with Danny Boyle. He's in 28 Days Later, apparently, as something like in, I think his his role is something like infected priest, and uh, yeah, they're the main people we hear in our earpieces. And then, depending on what area of the um, of the pitch that needed clearing you were assigned to, you had local choreographers, and they tended to be people who've got experience of West End dancing. And for example, our main choreographer was a guy called Nathan. Uh, and he was one of the motion captured penguins in the film Happy Feet, so it was, it, they all tend to have been people who 've been involved in some m- movie or um, theater
0: what a fun uh, what a fun little credit yeah
1: no it 's quite fun yeah there was some <laughs> uh, so yeah, no it 's cool they They basically kind of made sure we hadn 't forgotten how, how to do our moves. obviously you had to keep making sure that you got that refreshed, as I say, essentially in terms of the way the rehearsals work learn the choreography, then learn how to do the scene shifting, and then try and reintroduce the choreography. So the last kind of couple of weeks were, okay, we now know what you're going to be doing, now try and do it with a bit of style, so it actually looks like you're choreographed and not just marching up, grabbing some turf and walking off again.
0: I imagine dance instructors have to sometimes be tough, because they just have to to make their students good were they ever hard on you? Or was it just a friendly, positive environment?
1: It was pretty positive, actually. Um, yeah, I, mean, it's, I think the thing is, we're not being paid. We're all volunteers. I don't think you could reasonably have your kind of Black Swan. They're not like Vincent Castle in Black Swan. They're going to be uh, pretty easygoing with us. They're, I mean, they had quite strict rules about if you missed more than two rehearsals, you were out. That was a kind of... Um, how strictly that actually proved to be enforced, I don't know, because I only missed one. Um, but yeah, they they were pretty hard-nosed in how they were kind of saying, if you keep missing these, you're out. If you take photographs of anything while you're at any of the rehearsals, you're out. Again, I think they were reasonably forgiving, but it was a if you were spotted more than once taking photographs on your camera phone or something, somebody would have words with you. But in terms of actually kind of learning choreography, no one had a go at you if you stuffed up. It was more just kind of... Essentially, you've seen what that sequence looked like. If somebody wasn't doing the choreography quite right, they were a speck. So it wouldn't matter too much as long as it looked like they were moving the same way everybody else was.
0: And just to confirm, we can see you if we go watch the Olympic ceremony. You are a speck. You are on TV.
1: Yeah, I get about a second. In fact, it's odd, actually, uh, of my friends. The only people who actually spotted me were both uh, friends of mine who live in the States. So whether you guys, more people than I know who live in the States happen to have HD tellies, Uh, I don't know, but yeah, the the only two people I know who actually spotted me both lived in the states, so uh, yeah, you might briefly see me.
0: Was it possible to be in the opening ceremony and just not end up on camera?
1: Yeah, um, actually, quite a few of the people uh, in front and behind me don't can't see themselves at all, Um, and it's only because we've got sort of so many. Either phone, uh, the, like photographs people took at the ceremony, or, or photographs from all the newspapers afterwards, uh, that they've actually been able to see themselves and say, "Look, I was there. That's me."
0: Do you think you would be disappointed if, after the whole experience, you just weren't on TV? <sighs>
1: I'd, I'd love to say, uh, love to say no. Because
0: everyone in the world can see it. It's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: exactly. Everyone um, on earth is watching. Yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, that's just reminded me of one of the most amusing things. One of the early rehearsals, they said to us, uh, we need some more people who can do rollerblading. And quite a few people put their hands up in a. Oh, yeah, I can do rollerblading. And then they said, remember, it'll be in front of an audience of three billion people. And you saw almost all the hands go <laughs> straight back down. Um, so yeah, it's not. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it is a big old audience, um, but yeah, I mean it's, uh, I think even if I hadn't been on telly, the the experience of being uh, in that stadium on that night is pretty pretty special. Um, it just feels. I mean, I think one of the things is I think I got quite. You you do tend to get quite into it in in a sort of uh, my mind is set on this because we were sort of given quite a lot of guidance uh, about trying to make us look like we're almost automaton like in the way we go in, keep walking, look straight ahead, uh, go and clear, clear off our stuff, walk off, go back on, clear off something else, and take it off. So, and we had to sort of have quite a stern expression on the whole time. And it's really only at the end when we're kind of applauding the audience or applauding us that you kind of let that go and then realize there's a whole wall of people in front of you and these cameras going off, uh, camera flashes going off. You suddenly think, oh, my God, that was, that was really it. Um, but the cool thing about the fact that we went off last like that is we went off and saw all of the uh, performers in the following sequences lining up to go in. So he walked past all the nurses with their beds, and then all these people oh, dressed man. as... Was there this like, moment Z- where
0: you saw them, and you were like, don't worry, guys, it's a lot of fun out there.
1: Yeah, exactly right, you know, because uh, I, I knew the nerves that they were going to be kind of feeling just before going it's on.
0: It's like skydiving. I went skydiving, and the group was too big for one plane, so half of us went before the other half, and when they landed... They're done. It's over for them, but everyone else is still terrified, and they're like, oh, you're going to love it. It's the best. I was just like you. Trust me, it's so fun. It's. I wish I could do it again, but the people that haven't gone yet, they don't believe them because they haven't jumped yeah, yet.
1: Yeah, exactly right, and nothing you can say is kind of going to – you can do your best to say, it's awesome. Um, so, yeah, that was cool. And then we got to walk past the start of all the athletes. So uh, I think I walked past A to D. Because that's all that fitted in the secret sequ- in that sort of section of cor- of uh, park out the back there. Because um, yeah, this is the other thing. Um, you've got seven and a half thousand people, and they all need to get changed into costumes. So you have to put them somewhere. Um, and most of the venues, even though they're not in use yet because the Olympics hasn't actually started, people are using them for training. So you can't send us to like the aquatic centre or. You know, basketball courts or something, because people are using them. So we got sent to the far furthest end of the of the park uh, for a venue that's not actually going to be used until the Paralympic Games, which is in a couple of weeks' time. Um,
0: Who's using them? Isn't everyone at the opening ceremony? Uh,
1: they well. I mean, they're not. I guess they're not in use, but they can't set it up to be a sure, I- a massive wardrobe <laughs> full of uh, sort of several thousand costumes. And, and people need to have their. I'm, so, for example, um, in my sequence, most people just kind of looked a bit scruffy. So I had to, we were all told we couldn't shave. Like men were asked, well, not told, but asked not to shave for the few months before it. So we looked kind of unkempt and, and scruffy um, if in my sequence. Um, but in terms of makeup, it was basically just dab some soot on your face and, and we're done. So we didn't have our call to be ready wasn't long before the actual thing. I think uh, we were told we had to be at, uh, well, we had to be there at three o'clock uh, for the nine o'clock start. But um, if you were one of the nurses in that sequence, they all had to have their hair done. They all had to have makeup put on. They had to be there at eleven a.m. and they weren't going to be on uh, on telly until nine thirty. So that's quite a long day for them. It was, quite, it, was, it was quite interesting how different people, depending on how much stuff you had to have done to you, had to be there earlier.
0: And after all was said and done, you said you volunteered in the first place because you couldn't get tickets to the events. Uh, what is the payment? Do you get tickets to something?
1: Uh, no. Um, basically, for, we had four dress rehearsals. The final dress rehearsal of the opening ceremony, we, we, could bring, uh, we were given a couple of tickets. So we could give them to friends and family to come along um
0: but to the opening ceremony
1: to the the final dress rehearsal just to the dress dress. rehearsal yeah that's what we got how many people came to
0: the dress rehearsal was there a whole stadium there
1: yeah it was a full stadium for a dress rehearsal yep yeah because i mean they were trying to run it through as live as it would be on night so in in theory by that point we should be polished enough that we can do it all the way through was there Um, as
0: much pressure that night even though it wasn't on tv you're still in front of a stadium of people
1: uh, yeah and and more importantly in front of you know your <laughs> yeah, friends and family friends it's family. like it's
0: like, a, so, it's like another yeah. nightmare scenario you went through to get here
1: yeah so 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 somehow that's a benefit to us i'm not sure but um, the amongst the interesting thing was some things still not quite working right even up till the end so uh, the, the creepy baby head that you mentioned earlier that only worked right for the first time on the final dress rehearsal they never had they always ran out of music before they'd unfolded it and done that sort of sheet in front of it so uh that had only actually worked within time once before the the actual night so yeah there were all sorts of kind of last minute problems that they had in the the last few rehearsals so it's a, it's a miracle that everything kind of went as well as it did on the night
0: did everything go right the night of the uh, the big night
1: I, uh, certainly for me it did and i think everything that i was going near worked fine <laughs> looked
0: like it was supposed um, to go to me
1: but, but i do know that one person was saying one of the beam engines didn't uh, didn't come up properly and a bit fell off it I didn't see that. I've watched back to see if I can see that on the telly. I can't, I can't see that in the footage that they put out. So either they spotted it and just deliberately aimed the cameras away from it, or you know maybe it's not as obvious as he thought it was because he was right up there in front of it. I think that's a, one of the things that, that you soon realise in this process is because you're close to it and you know how things should look, you get more het up about minor problems than anyone anywhere would do watching it. So you know, uh, I remember sort of. I think my girl, when my girlfriend watched the final dress rehearsal, me saying, "Oh, this went wrong." It's like no one would see that. Why are you worried about that? It's like, but I saw it. It's like no, no, that's really going to make no difference to anything.
0: Are you involved? I mean, by the time people are hearing this, uh, the closing ceremony will have already happened. But uh, yep. we're a little further ahead. We have not seen the closing ceremony yet. We don't know. Who won all the gold medals? Frankly, I'm not sure who won any of the gold medals. I don't really watch the Olympics. <laughs> but uh, are you involved in the closing ceremonies at all?
1: No, just literally just the opening. Is Danny I think, Boyle
0: doing the closing ceremonies? it like it's another to do? Right?
1: Uh, it's not Danny Boyle. No, he's only he was only involved in the opening ceremony. Um, it's different. Uh, there's an overseeing team. Uh, and then there's different people in charge of them. From what I gather, and I, I genuinely don't know, because they've they've tried to keep it as, as secret as the opening ceremony was, uh, the closing ceremony is likely to be largely about musical performance rather than about visual spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is you can't get anybody in to do any rehearsals beforehand because there's athletics and stuff going on in there. Um, the Paralympic opening ceremony probably will be quite a spectacle as well. In fact, most people who were well, actually one thing that's quite interesting in in the section I was in, they sent us an email about a week before the finish of before the opening ceremony, saying if you want to get involved in the Paralympic opening ceremony as well, drop us a note and we'll see if we can uh, find a place for you in that. And apparently, of the one thousand people who were, um, as I say, in Doing my role in the opening ceremony, seventy percent of us applied because we enjoyed the experience so much so that's I mean that sort of tells you that even as i say there 's nothing uh, tangible other than your experience for taking part. The positivity of it is enough to make you think, yeah i'd do that again, which is pretty cool
0: yeah it's it 's so interesting because it 's uh, this piece of art created on a very very large budget, this spectacle and it 's art for the entire planet. It's kind of meant for everyone, you know? Everyone has to be able to enjoy it and appreciate it. And I think it's cool, now there's sort of this mini tradition that, now that Danny Boyle directed the ones, uh, the Olympics in England, and Ang Lee directed the opening ceremony in China. I kind of like this idea that every country is putting their best director in charge of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool too. I mean, I think one of the things that's, uh, Danny Boyle was very insistent that his production company film it so the the tv coverage that we had of the opening ceremony wasn't done by the olympic broadcast uh is it olympic broadcast network i can't remember but there's there's an official olympic broadcast company that films all of the events so all of the footage that you watch when you watch the olympics or or not if like me you don't really like the sport um wait a minute you don't like the
0: sport you sounded disappointed that uh you didn't get any tickets yeah
1: but i mean it how how often do you actually have your hometown host the olympics right
0: right right it's a special kind thing
1: go see it you know it's uh, so yeah i'm i'm as it turns out now it's actually started i'm watching quite a lot of sport because it's all but the news that there is at the moment but yeah i mean in general i'm not a big sports fan
0: i'm sorry i cut you off you were saying that um you were talking about a danny boys production company don't
1: yeah 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 so um they insisted on doing all of the filming so the the sequence of the opening ceremony was not filmed by the Olympic broadcast uh, people, and that's a first. It's always previously, even in Beijing, has been filmed by the Olympic broadcast people, and Danny said, well, look, your people are great at filming sports events. This isn't a sports event. It's a cultural event. That's what I do. I should have creative rights to choose how it's, how it's filmed, uh, and he won that one. Uh, unfortunately, he did lose uh, the fight. That was one of the things that sort of uh, we saw in the press in the the weeks leading up to the opening ceremony was uh one of the concerns you said you've been to London. Um what do you remember about public transport in London?
0: Uh mind the gap. Yeah okay. <laughs> uh there's a lot of escalators. I remember a lot of large escalators.
1: So the other thing is it stops early. Oh stops yeah that's early. true too. That you definitely know. is true. Um and if you've got eighty thousand people at far, a a distant, quite a distant area of of East London, who are probably all staying, if they're visitors, they're going to be staying in the centre of town. Probably most people who live in London, if they've gone to that opening ceremony, they're going to be trying to get all over the place. If that ceremony had gone on too late, they might not have got home. So there was a big conflict about whether or not uh, it was going to run on late. And so one of the decisions that literally, I think it was about two weeks before the opening ceremony, Uh, Danny had to choose what sequences to cut. And in fact, he was almost at the point of having to cut one of the the major sequences. And he ended up just cutting two minutes from each sequence. So in our bit, it just meant we did everything faster. Um, Because you know that the the underworld music that played during the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution sequence, uh, if it looked like we were doing a rotten job of clearing the field of play... They had uh, the contingency to play two minutes of that music in a loop so that it would give us a bit more time. Uh, They said, there's no way we're going to be able to do it on the night. You have to do it in 15 minutes. Uh, The second sequence, the sequence of the nurses, that should have had more trampolining children around the outside, but they couldn't get them out and in again in time. Uh, And then the third sequence, the sequence with the people dancing through uh, the ages, through 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on, uh, that should have had some kids on uh, BMX bikes doing tricks, but they couldn't fit that in and get the ramps in and out, and so that was cut as another two minutes of, you know, let's try and squeeze it as much as we can, try and get the ceremony to finish earlier. So, so we were aware of the fact there was all of this debate, and it came on the back of this additional debate about uh, creative vision and it being properly filmed rather than by sports people, or people used to filming sports.
0: And in your mind, it was a success?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, uh, certainly in the UK, it was really positively received. I think uh, the sequences people really loved were the one with James Bond and the Queen, uh, the one with Rowan Atkinson as ostensibly Mr. Bean. I thought that
0: was great because, you know, we were saying it has to go to the world, and Mr. Bean is uh, so universal because it's silent. You can really—I think anyone can—anyone— who I could get along with, would appreciate that, you know? Yeah,
1: exactly. So, I mean, I think those sequences everybody loved. I think people liked the big spectacle of it. Um, people in the UK also really loved the, the flame. The flame at the end was quite a spectacle when it kind of came together, which I think no one knew about outside of the um, core kind of creative team uh until the night so that was quite spectacle was spectacular to see um but yeah no i'm I'm sort of intrigued to hear what from you what you what you think the reaction was in the states generally about it to
0: the opening ceremony yeah uh i don't know you know i I wasn't ready for you to ask me a question i think people (laughs) here uh didn't hate it but often don't quite know what to make of it i think that's the reaction for every olympic opening ceremony Every single time, I think people react by saying, "Oh my God, what was that? It was some weird art thing. What was going on there?" Every single time, it's like they don't know what to expect. Yeah,
1: no, I mean uh, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, during, I mean, you again in terms of things that it's it's so difficult to convey so much during the sequence where we're we were clearing off the the crops and the the turf and everything around the outside of the stadium and. Briefly featured in the uh, in uh, the TV footage, there was a boat called the Windrush, which was meant to represent the movement of West Indian people to the UK in the fifties. Uh, there were some suffragettes representing, obviously, women's suffrage in the UK. Um, there was uh, some Jarrow Marchers, who were some of our earliest unionists, um, and who made a march sort of more or less the length of England. Uh, to go and march on Parliament, uh, and all of these things happened around the outside, and probably got a fraction of a second in terms of TV coverage. Um, and yeah, it's it's you know if you're going to have all of these things going on, you can't possibly expect anybody watching it to pick up on a a story going to go underlying it. So um, yeah, it was uh, uh, it, it's quite. I mean, uh, our section was called pandemonium, and I think that. Probably can is reflects quite how manic it was in terms of how much stuff was happening at once.
0: It sounds like a really fun experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it was. No, I really enjoyed it. Um, and as I say, as you say, uh, made some good friends. Uh, I'm going to stay in touch with. So yeah, if if the opportunity presents itself, I mean, this is it, uh, this year. I'd say I've been probably uh, volunteering for things just as a, a random kind of experiment to see how things go. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the the, the the randomness of where it leads.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask, when you're not being an extra in the Olympic opening ceremony, uh, what do you do?
1: <laughs> I do IT. I, I work for uh, a local government um, for the city of Westminster um, and look after one of the uh, IT systems. So uh, the system I look after does planning and licensing applications. People log uh, this stuff on there and I do the back-end making sure it keeps running and dealing with problems.
0: And the schedule is flexible enough that you could volunteer your time to do this?
1: Uh, Yeah, fortunately. I mean,
0: to be honest, I didn't have to take a lot of
1: time off, except in maybe the week leading up to uh, the ceremony itself. Because all the rehearsals were weekends and evenings, so uh, it worked out quite nicely.
0: What are some of the other things that you've been volunteering for?
1: Uh, So at the start of the year, I volunteered to take part uh, to help some people who are running um, what they described as, I think, the world's largest... um, I get the right adjective. Something like the world's largest immersive game. Um, so basically for Edinburgh at New Year, they did a thing called the New Year Games and they took over one of the big squares there um, and everybody had to ally themselves. Everybody who came to Edinburgh was encouraged to ally themselves with either being an uppie or a Dooney, to do with whether you just identify yourself with coming from the north or the south of the town you grew up in or the country that you live in or however you choose to... Ally yourself with North or South, and then basically we ran these games all over the town. If you won a game, you got given some coins, and then you had to go to this square where there were two totems, and you basically had to go and put your coins in a bucket. And at the end of the day, we counted up to see which which one had got the most bu- um, coins in their bucket. Uh, so it was quite a fun thing across the whole of the City of Edinburgh on New Year's Day. Uh, what else have I been up to? I'm having a go at doing some comedy of sorts, which has been uh, quite fun. Uh, Next week, I'm off up to Edinburgh uh, for the Edinburgh Festival. So back up to Edinburgh. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the Edinburgh Festival. I
0: haven't been, but I know exactly what it is. And I really would love to go one year. It's something I really would love to do. It's one of my dream vacations. It is
1: an utterly awesome and crazy thing. So basically for the the whole of the city, pretty much anything that could act as a venue from a pub to... Uh, a cafe, anything, will become a venue for comedy or music or theatre um, across the whole city. So there's like several hundred venues in uh, Edinburgh, relative to, to London, is not a big city. Uh, so it's quite amazing to see this, this place kind of turn, completely change. Um, but yeah, one of my friends is doing a show called uh, Domestic Science, and it's about comedy and science. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a presentation one day on, um, well, I've called it Dead Cosmonauts Don't Count. And it's about the conspiracy theory that Yuri Gagarin isn't or wasn't the first man in space uh, based on the fact that these two Italian brothers uh, recorded some audio of a heartbeat um, back in early 1961. Is it
0: a real conspiracy theory?
1: This is a real conspiracy theory. You can read about it if you Google uh, on, on, on the Wikipedia. If you look up Lost Cosmonauts, uh, you can read about this. The, there's, there's a whole load of uh, information about it. And, yeah, basically a lot of people think um, – because basically these two Italian brothers – I'll tell you a little bit about it – these two Italian brothers called the Judica Cordelia brothers, they set up um, a listening post on the roof of their Milan villa and recorded audio from space. Now, because both uh, Americans and Russians wanted everyone to know how successful their missions had been, they published all the radio frequencies that their transmissions from space were going to be broadcast on. So we know that their uh, records are good because, for example, the, these brothers recorded the sound of Leica's heartbeat in 1957 before the Russians had even revealed there was a dog aboard Sputnik 1. So they have pretty good uh, um, audio recordings. And I think it was in February 1961, they recorded the sound of a human heartbeat coming from something in space on a Russian audio frequency. Um, And yeah, no one really knows uh, what it was. So I'm kind of talking about that.
0: Will you ever dance again (laughs) now that you've learned You've received training from uh, one of the great choreographers. Will you ever dance again?
1: Uh, is that, uh, you offering me something? I'll <laughs>
0: yeah, I probably would. I mean, uh, yeah, if you saw
1: me on the dance floor, you'd probably ask me to stop. But uh, yeah, I will. I, I would dance again. I reckon. Awesome. It was a fun experience.
0: That's great. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for uh, talking to us about it. It's such an interesting side of the Olympics that I think most people never think about uh, all the work that goes into it. No,
1: it's cool. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Jeff. Cheers.
0: You guys, I've been thinking, if America got the Olympics again, who is our best director? Who should we send to direct the opening ceremony? And here's what I came up with. The Cohen brothers. How great would it be to give the Cohen brothers uh, an unlimited budget to create an enormous visual spectacle? It'd be incredible. Thank you again to Mike for uh, being on the show. Thank you to Daniel who did the intro for the enhanced version of the show this week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that means you're listening to the MB3 version and you're missing out on all sorts of cool pictures. The enhanced version of the show is available on iTunes and YouTube. And uh, if you want to hear yourself recording... If you want to hear your own voice in the opening of the enhanced version of the show, uh, record it, leave out the sound, I'll take care of that. Send it to Jeff Rubin at JeffRubenshow.com. I'm officially out of submission, so if you send me one, there is a pretty good chance that I will use it, especially if you are from another country and mention that. Don't lie, I'll know, but I love hearing those international listeners. Uh, okay, now this is probably the part where a few of you are thinking Jeff's just going to talk about where to get the show. It's the same thing he always does. Uh, I'm going to tune out. There is something new this week. Of course, as always, I'll tell you about new Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows on Twitter, where I'm at Jeff Rubin Show on Tumblr at JeffRubinJeffRubin.com, uh, on my Facebook fan page, and at YouTube.com slash JeffRubinJeffRubin. You already know that. But the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is now a part of the Cider Podcast Network. Split Sider, for those who don't know, is a comedy news website uh, run by Adam Frucci, who has been on this podcast. He was in the Battlestar Galactica board game episode. I'm sure you all remember that. And uh, it is a great website. I've been reading it pretty much every day since the uh, very first day it launched. And I'm friends with Adam, but I'm not such good friends that I would be reading it every day if I didn't truly enjoy it. And they're starting a podcast network. And the other shows there, uh, It's That Episode, How Was Your Week, Left-Handed Radio, are some of my favorite podcasts. And I'm really just honored to be a part of it. What does this mean for you, the listener? almost nothing. Actually, I might even go ahead and say nothing. Uh it's still going to be the same show. I'm not working with Splitsider to actually produce it. They have no say in what goes in it, though I'm sure they have good ideas if they did. Uh but it's still the same show. Really, the only difference is now there is another way to find out about new Jeff Rubin Jeff Rubin shows and that is going to Splitsider where every Tuesday there will be a post about the new episode. So that's kind of exciting, right? Pretty fun. Uh, thank you so much for listening in this episode. I think that I think that's all the news I've got. Pretty big week. Oh, next week on the show, we're going to have Fred Graver. If you don't know Fred by name, you've almost certainly uh, seen something he's worked on. Uh, Fred has had an incredible career. We're going to talk about all of it. He has worked on uh, David Letterman in the 80s. He, wor- he wrote for David Letterman. He wrote for Cheers. He wrote a Choose Your Own Adventure book. He wrote uh, for In Living Color. He worked as a Disney Imagineer. Well, he was an assistant to Disney Imagineers. He'll he'll explain. Uh, This is all one person. Keep in mind this is all one person. He uh, works at Twitter. Really just an incredible guy. Fascinating career. And that is going to be the subject of next week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I'll see you there. Bye for now.